This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Friday. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. You love saying that. I don't know how many times. I've actually never said Friday instead no, of Friday. You've said how much we appreciate them. I- no, I, that's my new opening, Ryan. That's how I open the show now. Is it? Yeah, I decided because I, I started doing it so much that I like doing it. Oh, I didn't. I didn't get Thanks that. Thanks for memo. calling it out. I didn't see that email. I didn't see that email. No, it was in my head. You okay? know, when you start loving on people so much, they'll want to like resist it. So you got to give people a little bit, and you know, at a time. You don't want to just smother them. You're oh, like, okay. you're like, literally, your Jewish mother's popping out in front of our, like, with our audience, being like, "I appreciate you. Did you wash your behind today? Are you projecting, Ryan?" <laughs> What is this? Your avoidant attachment is coming out. No, I think everyone is thinks it. Okay, let us know at LGT show. Are you feeling <laughs> smothered by me? I really want to know. <laughs> Tell me. Okay, coming up on the show, research reveals how our public and private spaces make us more creative. Uh, plus, why some are saying that Silicon Valley could become the next Detroit and where the latest tech hubs are popping up around the world. But right now, let's get into some what's trending this hour. VP Mike Pence and his wife received their first doses of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine in a televised event in Washington, D.C. this morning, becoming the first prominent member of the Trump administration to get one. We gather here today at the end of a historic week to affirm to the American people that hope is on the way. And Karen and I were more than happy to step forward before this week was out to take the safe and effective coronavirus vaccine uh, that we have secured and produced for the American people. It's a truly inspiring day. As the people of this country witnessed this, uh, this past week under Operation Warp Speed, the first coronavirus vaccine is literally being administered in states across the country to millions of Americans. Make no mistake about it, it's a medical miracle. The average vaccine, I'm told by our experts, usually takes between 8 and 12 years to develop and then manufacture and distribute. But we're on track here in the United States to administer millions of doses to the American people in less than one year. Well, if Mike Pence did it, you know, it has to be safe. Now, GOP Senator Ron Johnson blocked an effort to pass a second round of stimulus checks, arguing coronavirus relief needs to be targeted and raising concerns about the country's debt. Now, Senator Josh Hawley, who is a Republican, tried to get consent, which, by the way, requires the cooperation of every senator to pass his bill that would provide $1,200 for individuals who make up to $75,000. It's the exact same language that Congress passed as part of the Cures Act in March. And it backfired, basically. Johnson objected under the Senate's rules. Any one senator can request to pass a bill, but any other senator can object and block it. And that's exactly what happened, unfortunately. Now, the Supreme Court is throwing out a challenge to President Donald Trump's plan to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count. And this has huge implications for counting seats in Congress when they are divvied up between the states next year. Census officials have indicated they're facing difficulties processing census responses in time to produce the final count by an end of the year deadline. And reports are saying it will be done by February. 
And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we didn't talk about this story earlier this week because everyone was talking about Tom Cruise, unfortunately. But hero star Leonard Roberts and the actress who played his on-screen wife, Allie Larder, allegedly had instant conflict on the show, and he claims that tension led to him getting axed after the first season. This is your tea report. Follow me here. It's a lot to dive into, but we're going to get through it fast. So here's the thing. I love the show Heroes. I watched it when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, Lenard, uh, he actually, in a lengthy statement uh, essay for Variety, he opened up about his experience as a black man on the incredibly popular NBC series. The lack of black voices behind the scenes on the show and the alleged reasons behind his unceremonious dismissal. Because I remember him just literally going away. Um, He added that the larger moment we find ourselves in currently is what compelled him to open up now. And so this essay really talks about how there was a lot of racism out on this, how even his on-screen wife, Allie, played into that and said that she didn't even want to kind of do love scenes with him because he was a black man. So it's, he really detailed, I mean, it's detailed, so you should check it out. But Allie Larder actually responded to the essay about his time on Heroes in a statement to TV Line. She said, I am deeply saddened to hear about Leonard's, uh, Robert's experience on Heroes, and I am heartbroken reading his perception of our relationship, which absolutely does not match my memory nor experience on the show. And she said more, but I want you to go over to WeAreChannelQ.com to find out what she else she had to say. Because a lot of people were coming for her because she was one, you know, really protesting for George Floyd earlier this summer. And she was also someone who posted that black box on Instagram. So when you're hearing stories about this and her statement is kind of literally just negating that, um, it's a little sad. So... Go ahead over to WeirdChannelQ.com. I would love to know what your thoughts are. Uh, are. Let us know at LGT Show Everywhere, and that is your team report. Okay, well, coming up on the show, Dr. James Simmons joins us to share more about his experience on the ground in the ICU right now as capacity drops to 0%. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As of Thursday, the ICU capacity in the 11-county Southern California region has dropped to 0% amid a really dramatic surge in coronavirus cases. And simultaneously, we also got news of the highest number of fatalities in one day there since the pandemic began. And back with us is our favorite Dr. James Simmons, who you can also listen to every Friday on Channel Q. Thanks again for joining us. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I mean, you're there in the trenches. You are working while you're also here on Channel Q. What's it been like? You're seeing a dramatic change, I'm sure, as well. I mean, we're hearing in the news, but you're there. Yeah, it's it, it's wild. And I, it's almost hard to talk about because I mm-hmm. feel like a little bit of a, of a broken record um, in talking about it. It also is, you know, it's, it's emotional to talk about for sure. But um, you know, I've been accused of being a fear monger quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. And I, I almost feel like that's because I've been much more forward about just, just like hammering the truth and things are so much worse than they were before. Uh, we're not making this up. We're not saying these things and making them up in order to try to scare people into a certain type of behavior. We're just letting you know the reality of things. And the reality of things right now is that I was admitting patients from the parking lot yesterday. So my, the, the hospital that I'm in here in Southern California, we have had 0% ICU beds for almost 10 days now. There are so many patients in the emergency department that are actually ICU patients that there aren't room for other patients to be in the emergency department. So the ambulances are just lined up in the back and we're treating patients in the back of the ambulances. But if they have COVID, we're putting them, pulling them out of the ambulances, right? And just putting them outside so that it diffuses the COVID So we're treating people on gurneys in the parking lot behind my hospital because it's so overwhelmed. And this is exactly what we talked about when we said that there's going to be a huge surge coming after Thanksgiving when so many people got together and had meals indoors and and did all those things. And I get it. Pandemia exhaustion is very real. But now we are seeing the quite literal life and death consequences of that. How do you get used to the amount of people that you're possibly seeing dying from this? Like, is that something that 
is even registering for you anymore like it probably did in the beginning of all this because i know as someone who is a healthcare professional like you you do your job to save people and at this moment it could be hard for that to not happen so i just was wondering like has it gotten easier for you to read like sit with that or is it harder at this point you know it's it's uh it's never easy to to you know see people die and I, from the very first time that happened to me when i was in nursing school as a student up until now it's it's still a very real a very you know traumatic experience and I, I don't care how old that person is you know some people say oh yeah well the person's 98 well it's still a human life um that that is expiring unfortunately What's going on now that I think is making it harder, Ryan, to your question is the people are younger. Um, I, I had a 48 year old woman the other day who had no previous medical history and I knew she was really sick and not doing well. And I left the hospital the day I left the hospital. I think this was on Wednesday. And I just knew I was like, I don't think she's going to make it through the night. And I walked into the hospital at 630 a.m. the next morning while they were coding her and she mm. ended up dying. So wow. this is not a situation where it's just grandma and grandpa who are 87 with 14 different comorbidities and all these other things. These are, these are real people. These are our friends and neighbors. And it's becoming so overwhelming now that we have gotten to the point where we're having to triage people in the hospital, meaning we only have so much equipment. And so we have to decide who gets the equipment to keep them alive Ugh. and who does not get the equipment. That's traumatizing. And, and you also can't then take other people. Like if someone gets into a devastating car accident and needs to go to the ICU or heart attack, it, does that happen too? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's unfortunately, yes, it's happening right now. So, you know, the place I work is a trauma center. And so we get lots of people with car accidents. We get gunshot victims, um, you know, uh, uh, assault victims and and those individuals come in and some of them are having to be rushed off to surgery and instead of going to the surgical ICU afterwards they're just are staying in the operating room and being taken care of by the nurses in the operating room or in recovery because there's no room in the ICU so you have very sick people who really need to be under the care of ICU team who can't even get to the ICU after their car accident because it's so full of COVID patients. I mean, you would think that because the vaccine, we're starting to see it be distributed. I mean, Mike Pence took it today, unfortunately. Um, and you would think people would start to, I, I guess maybe things would, that would be the light at the end of the tunnel is what I'm trying to say. Is that something that you feel because vaccines are right around the corner and it is happening and people are getting it in their systems? Is, is that something that's making you hopeful that this is all going to slow the, the, the pressure and everything going on down? Yeah, very tremendously hopeful. I, I was I was a, had a weird mix of emotions yesterday when I received the vaccine that I was like, oh, my gosh, it's finally here. Like, however many months after this thing started, and I can't believe we have a vaccine already. And yes, give it to me. I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, I want to be protected, you know, from from COVID and so that I can feel a little bit of a relief while working with patients and, you know, be able to just sort of, man you know, navigate in my community. But also, I went right immediately back to the worst working conditions of my entire professional career. Uh, and with this pandemic going on and, you know, here in LA County, we're at 0% ICU bed capacity and the numbers are only going up. It's not as if we're at 0% ICU bed capacity. Hospitals are full and the numbers are going down. Numbers are still going up. We're building tents now in the parking lot of my hospital to, to care for patients. It's really, it's really difficult. All right. Well, Dr. James Simmons, thanks again for all your work. We're sending you lots of love. Thank you. And uh, now coming up on the show, the first abortion case of the Amy Coney Barrett era is now before the Supreme Court. What this could mean for the pro-choice movement, that's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A case that could roll back abortion rights is back before the Supreme Court, and it's the first with Amy Coney Barrett there. Jenny Pizer is back with us. She's the Law and Policy Director for Lambda Legal. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, always good to be with you. So tell us more about this case specifically that is being looked at so we just kind of get some context here. Yeah, well, this is a case uh, bought, brought by uh, ACOG, the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, wonderful physicians who are often on the front line of trying to defend access to good quality reproductive health care for all of us who need it, uh, against the FDA. And it has to do with a Trump administration effort to make it harder for people to get um, medication abortion, sometimes called emergency contraception or the day after pill or different names for some of the different medications. But the idea is 
uh, for a person who does not want to continue a pregnancy to be able to do it with medication as opposed to a surgical abortion. And this particular rule says that these, this medication needs to be picked up directly from a healthcare provider, can't be gotten through the mail, for example. And that may or may not have been reasonable before, but during this pandemic, uh, when a lot of clinics are closed or operating on very limited hours, and many of us are afraid to go out and interact, and in particular, to maybe to go in, not to go into medical settings where some people may have COVID, this becomes a barrier. And the question is whether it's an unreasonable, unconstitutional barrier because there's not a good medical reason for it. Um, the Trump administration has said, well, you can have a surgical abortion. So therefore, your access to abortion is not really being burdened in an mm. unconstitutional way. But, you know, pretty darn obvious that taking pills appropriately as directed is an awful lot easier to do than to have surgery, even really super safe surgery. And if there's not a good reason, medical reason for this, Kind of insisting that people be at risk for COVID in order to make the medical decision they want to make about not continuing a pregnancy, it's, it's pretty problematic. Let's just say, really problematic. Yeah, and obviously you're not a medical doctor, but like, is there really anything that is like considered a safe surgery, especially in the middle of a pandemic? Like, how is that impacting uh, this moment as well? Well, I mean, abortion is very, very safe. And, and so it's not a question of, of, the, the surgical termination being unsafe. Um, and in fact, this is, this is one of the issues that has come up in prior cases and may come up again now that we have a different makeup on the Supreme Court, that there's no need for super fancy, sterile operating room conditions for an abortion because it's not a matter of, you know, opening up wounds. Uh, so, I mean, physically it's very safe, but it is more invasive and more trouble than a medication abortion. And if there's not a medical reason to be requiring all that extra intrusion and trouble and so forth, um, then that shouldn't be required. And part of what we're looking at here is the change in the U.S. Supreme Court, because, you know, on a regular basis, the Supreme Court takes up uh, cases about abortion because the political and religious opposition to abortion rights has been in fierce overdrive for decades. And state legislatures keep coming up with restrictions that get litigated. And the Supreme Court has gone back and forth a bit about what the Constitution permits, sometimes allowing restrictions that really make no sense, and then sometimes pulling back a bit, seeing that the legislatures went crazy and imposed all kinds of restrictions that were quite obviously not for medical safety purposes, but were designed to shut abortion access down. Um, so we don't know what the Supreme Court will do with this one. There's a, there's a number of different ways that they could approach it. Okay. Again, we're talking to Jenny Pizer, Law and Policy Director for Lambda Legal. Yeah, it seems about like all this is about ease and accessibility and then making it harder for people to get access to it. So inherently it's saying like, well, this isn't the right thing to do. We don't want you to do it, right? Uh, so what are the implications of this getting passed? Yeah, well, so um, the Supreme Court definitely has different options. I mean, they could defer to the FDA, which has put this rule in place. And if they do that, it, it would be bad as a legal matter to a certain extent, but control over the FDA does uh, shift depending who's in the White House. And so in the immediate term, this is something that might be corrected by a Biden administration. What gets a little more dicey and alarming given how the composition of the Supreme Court has changed, and in particular, um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch, all new members of the court since the last big abortion ruling that we had from the Supreme Court, they all have very clear, aggressive anti-abortion track records. Now, that does not dictate what they would necessarily do on the Supreme Court, but it's a pretty alarming uh, indication of what might happen. And if they approach this with new constitutional rulings, changing the standards and, uh, and reducing the individual patient's autonomy right and granting government more ability to impose restrictions basically saying, oh, it's unclear, the medical experts disagree, we're going to defer to a legislature, we're going to defer to the FDA, uh, we're going to diminish individual constitutional rights, that could be a huge problem. And it could be a huge problem for reproductive health access, but that kind of reasoning easily could then apply to transition-related care for transgender folks, 
um, our rules ab about trying to restrict conversion therapy, which is not really therapy, access to other types of reproductive medicine, and of life care. There's lots of things where religion and medicine don't always agree. The question is who has the power and do we still have our constitutional rights? And I guess we'll wait and see, but it's a little concerning. All right. Well, that was uh, Jenny Pizer, Law and Policy Director for Lambda Legal. Thanks again for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Now coming up, more on apocalypsing, the dating trend that could happen to anyone. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. You know, Ryan, I'm all about those trends, right? Well, there's a new trend in dating we're going to talk about. It's called apocalypsing. I mean, I swear, one person gets into a relationship and all she can do is talk about dating. <laughs> well, listen, listen up. And I, I'm doing this for you because this might protect you from a future relationship or from being apocalypsed if that is even a word. Okay, so what is it, you might ask? It consists of treating every relationship like it's your last. So basically, you meet someone you're infatuated with, and then bada-bing, bada-boom, suddenly you're super serious, you've established in into each other's COVID bubbles, and you're basically planning your life together. So Plenty of Fish did this survey. Uh, they pulled 2,000 singles. One-third of the singles they pulled said they know someone who's done this. And Gen Z is particularly prone to it with nearly a third admitting to the trend, including during this time. So, Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Are you worried about getting into an uh, apocalypse relationship? No, I'm not. I'm not worried about any of this, to be quite honest. Well, what do you think about it? I mean, I, I it makes sense to me because I must say, I'll admit, I feel like during this time, you're kind of like not in a place where you want to uh, waste time, right? And you're not going to just hang out with anyone. So you are kind of, and depending on how old you are, possibly looking for the one or in that mode of like, who knows what's going to happen in life? This could be the last person I'm with. Yeah, I'm not worried about apocalypsing because one, I don't, I like to be by myself. I'm not in a hurry to be in a relationship like other people that I know. And that's not a shot at Shira or any, like, well, it might be a shot at some people I know, but not Shira specifically. Um, oh, that's the first time you're not taking a shot at me. I appreciate that. I mean, you're, you kind of are this person when you think about, you know, you're the type of person who's always treating their, la their relationship like it's their last. You meet someone, you become super infatuated with them. I mean, this is really more so about you than it is me because I don't do this. <laughs> How does you you were going down a different lane and then you just came right back up? You did a. Well, you. I'm just like reading more into this story, and I'm just like, yeah, this doesn't seem like me at all, to be honest. Like I'm just someone who always wants to take their time and get to know someone, and I think now more than ever, um, there's that time with doing that. Like I think especially if people are rushing to meet you and do all these things, like in the middle of a pandemic, you start to see like, oh, they don't really take this seriously. So why would I rush into something with somebody that is like trying to rush into a relationship or do all these things um, when they're not literally proactively thinking like, oh, we should take this slow because we're in the middle of a pandemic and just enjoy the time that we're having. Like, it's not really I mean, the presence, end of the world. Like not not getting too far ahead of yourself. I mean, but this doctor who's part of this Yahoo Life article, she says it's it's not everyone will be settling and apocalypsing. Uh, sometimes you just meet the right person and they're a great match for you. And that's really comes down to doing a gut check. But ways to avoid getting into this. You don't want to get into an apocalypsing relationship, apocalyptic, whatever. Uh, this is how to avoid it. One, make sure you're bolstering your support system. So you have your go-to friends to talk to instead of just like defaulting to that person that you might not even know that well, but you're acting like is like the, the best thing since apple pie. Uh, if you don't have a physical bubble, build out your virtual one. So schedule extra Zooms, Netflix parties, phone calls with the people you love. And then finally, which I love this, and this really helped me through a lot of lonely times during COVID, set your standards and deal breakers. Because once you do that, as you mentioned, Ryan, like it's very clear who you want to continue hanging out with and dating and who possibly is the one and who is not. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like you got it all figured out here. Uh, I mean, so, I'm I mean, the expert, obviously. Asked I mean, you to be the expert in this. Really, article. I should just write like uh, an encyclopedia, you know, a series of books on this. Really. <laughs> all right, coming up, who beat out AOC for a seat on the House Committee? More details on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Now coming up on the show, why you might not be feeling as creative working from home and how you can get out of that rut. Plus why Silicon Valley is dying and what cities are rising at the forefront of innovation. That is coming up in this hour on the show. But first, here's how to celebrate the holidays with us this weekend. Oh, oh my God, it is this weekend. We are so close to Christmas, and here is a Channel Q Christmas gift. Channel Q presents Pop Goes Christmas. All you got to do is tune in Sunday, December 20th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern for our holiday music special with music performances from pop diva Ava Max. Why don't we and special guest appearances and interviews with Mariah Carey, Sam Smith, and so many more of your faves. Here's where you can listen. You got you can listen right here on your favorite Channel Q station. Simply download the radio.com app or ask your smart speaker to play Channel Q. It is that easy. I'm telling you, that is Sunday, December 20th, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here. Keep it locked in. I mean, just ask Alexa, play Channel Q. It is that simple. You're welcome. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Okay, let's get into some what's trending this hour. During the U.S. Space Force one-year anniversary celebration, VP Mike Pence announced members will now be called Guardians. As I mentioned, we just returned from the Oval Office, and so it is my honor, on behalf of the President of the United States, to announce that henceforth, the men and women of the United States Space Force will be known as Guardians. Come on, Pence, you could have just said it. You know what you want to say. It's on all of our minds. They're going to be Guardians of the Galaxy. You're so corny. Is there any other thing? We're thinking about it. Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, wait a second. Have you ever seen that movie? Yes, I have. <laughs> have you seen both movies? Baby Groot. Oh my God, but I do like this. I mean, it's fitting for a space force. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? This might might be the one cool thing that the administration- They could have just went with Power Rangers. Come on, yeah, that was uh, trademarked, so. Representative Kathleen Rice has captured a prize seat on the House Energy and Commerce Committee after a really uh, contentious showdown with fellow New Yorker Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Rice and AOC have been battling behind the scenes, supposedly, for weeks to secure one of the few open seats on this very exclusive committee, which oversees everything from health care policy to climate issues. And it all went down on Thursday in a private meeting of the Steering and Policy Committee, where Democrats were forced to choose between the two members in what is being described as a tense and awkward secret ballot vote. And Rice ultimately won in a pretty big uh lopsided votes of 46 to 13. Yikes. Some Democrats even use the time to drag AOC. And this comes from Representative Henry Kohler of Texas, who said this on the call. I'm taking into account who works against other members in primaries and who doesn't. Yee. That doesn't sound good. Well, you know, it's going to be challenging for AOC because she is a rising star. And I think there's a lot of the older crowd Right, the the OGs who are not necessarily all about her right now, but she'll get there. Now, speaking of AOC, she was on her way to receive the COVID nineteen vaccine and shared this with reporters. The vaccine is now available to members of Congress, and we're urged to take it as part of a continuity of governance plan. Um, and so, you know, I it's 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 faster than I had even anticipated this would be available to us. Um, but I think it's extremely important for us to, you know, model and practice what we preach. And also, speaking of vaccines, we just keep segueing from one thing into the other. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell both got their first doses of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine today. The congressional leaders are among the highest ranking government officials to receive the shot following VP Mike Pence, who was vaccinated on live TV earlier today. Uh, Pelosi tweeted this today with confidence in science and at the direction of the office of the attending physician, I received the COVID-19 vaccine. 
As the vaccine is being distributed, we must all continue mask wearing, social distancing, and other science-based steps to save lives and crush the virus. Now, McConnell, who's 78, wrote this in his tweet, just received the safe, effective COVID vaccine following continuity of government protocols. Vaccines are how we beat this virus. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in the tea report, Ryan? All right. So we got some pop culture uh, intersecting with politics. Dr. Jill Biden has finally spoken out. Um, she is surprised by the tone of criticism over her degree and title. So here's the thing. She was on um, The Late Show with uh, Stephen Colbert. And mm -hmm. You know, she addressed the mainstream outlets that ran criticism of her e uh, PhD and her decision to go by doctor in a Thursday night chat last night, remarking that the attacks and especially their tone caught her off guard. Here's what she had to say. It was such a surprise. It caught me by surprise <laughs> as well. I did not see that one coming. No, nor did I. And, you know, it was really the tone of it that I think that, um, you know, he called me kiddo. And one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, is my doctorate. I mean, I worked so hard for it. And uh, and my, you know, Joe came when I defended my thesis. And, um, but, you know. It, I got to hand her a doctorate <laughs> on the stage, University of Delaware. So, yeah, I mean, she's still in good spirits. But, yeah, anytime you're being called kiddo, it's never going to be good. Never. I mean, come on. The... Uh, all these things coming out about her being, you know, a doctor and dropping the doctor and people, you know, picking on her dissertation, right, and criticizing it is just ridiculous. It's completely sexist. And it's been nothing but men. It's gross yep. at the end of the day. And let her do what she's doing. I think uh, they. she also mentioned in that same interview um, that she's going to be the first a uh, first lady who keeps her job and has a full-time salary. So like, hey. here's the thing, things are changing and you're either going to get with it or get left behind. And that is your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. Okay. Coming up next though, on the show, the real reason working from home has stunted your creativity and what to do about it. We'll be back in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Research shows that working from home could be stunting your creativity. So what do we all do about this? Because I don't know if it's ending anytime soon. Well, Rebecca Rotundo is joining us right now, an Associate Director of Learning Design from University at Buffalo. Thanks for being here. Thank you guys for having me. So what impacts creativity in our daily lives and why has that been decreased during this current situation? And I would say first, like my assumption would be stress, but it's not just that. <laughs> well, I think the, the emotion, the emotions of the time definitely have a huge influence, creativity. But really what I think a lot of people are feeling is, you know, being trapped in your home <laughs> and having limited access to a variety of environments and a variety of people is really starting to stunt our creative growth. So when you go about your day-to-day, -day, you know, you move through a variety of environments that trigger mental, physical, you know, you smell different things. And most importantly, you run into people. Sometimes it's, it's you know, a happenstance on the street. Um, often we run into people at those places we, we often frequent, think places like coffee shops, um, stopping in for your local coffee in the morning and saying hi to the old guys in the corner, um, having a quick conversation about, you know, the crazy thing that happened in the news. All of those things add little bits and pieces that your brain puts together to create new ideas. So what we're seeing now is that that sort of without those happenstance moments, those unplanned moments of inspiration, that we're worried that that we're going to have a, a loss of creativity. So you don't think it's, it would show up anywhere else, especially now that things are virtual and, and, you know, people are at home and maybe they've kind of pivoted in a way. Can that stuff show up in maybe the way that you decorate? I know some friends have redecorated their entire apartment because it was felt like a kind of creative outlet. So I guess are people expressing themselves differently and finding other creative outlets? I think for sure that, outward creativity. But if you think about it, so creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum. Although often you'll have, you know, if Thoreau moving himself to a pond to write, 
But really what he did for the years before that was be inspired by different ideas and the construction of ideas. And then maybe you take yourself away and you express those ideas. And that might be, be a, a time when you take yourself away so you can get quiet and put them together. But you have to feed all that creativity through stimulus. You know, nowadays, like Pinterest is a huge feeder. But the thing about Pinterest is you have to be looking for something. And real creative inspiration often comes from unplanned moments, unplanned things that happen, you know, mistakes that happen in your art, weird conversations you have before a meeting, or, you know, when you're just sitting there talking with a friend and you have no goal. Again, we're talking to Rebecca Rotundo, an associate director of learning design from University at Buffalo. Can you talk about how you can design your life in spaces for creativity? Because... In this article, you do talk about like coffee spaces and the spaces that we're in where we serendipitously bump into people. It's not by happenstance. Mm -hmm. They're actually creating those spaces for that reason. And uh, well, one, can you create some context around that? And then I want to get into how we could possibly build that in our lives if we're not in those spaces. (laughs) Sure. So when you think of a, a warm, comfortable coffee shop, let's just say, you probably have some ideas. You have, um, Maybe there's a, there's a counter, but the counter you have to walk to, it's maybe not right in the front. And you might have to, um, there's a lane, but there's, there's stuff on either side of it that's sort of tempting these nice little nooks, these tables you can kind of wedge yourself into. And so often these spaces are designed and, and, you know, I call them like sticky spaces. So they're designed to be appealing to you so that you sit down and you want to stay in them. So I work in um, higher ed and we, we try and design our student spaces to be sticky. So students stay there and they work and they have friends come by and sit down. So creating these spaces, it has to be, you know, everything from the heat, the light, how much natural light you have, the seating and where it's arranged and how the flow of the space is arranged and your visual, can you see all the way through it? But are there little nooks where you can get a little bit of privacy and still work? Or are there big areas where everybody can sit down together? So Mm. we can imagine all these kinds of spaces are are all very intentional. Um, Okay, so as a person who overthinks a lot, I'm getting a little (laughs) overwhelmed by this conversation. Uh. (laughs) Just because there's so many things on the table of how to kind of rejuvenate your creativity. But what about those people who get overwhelmed by that, who need the creativity, but they're overwhelmed by finding it? Right, So, so being visually overwhelmed or being, you know, having auditory overwhelmed, that's, that's a real issue for a lot of people. Um, I, for one, gets very visually overwhelmed with light. Um, so when we create spaces that we want people to stay in, we, a really good idea is to give them varieties of locations. So you might have a big table in the middle, right next to a lane. You have a lot going on there, but you might have a smaller table off to the side. And then you might even have a little nook in the corner where you're kind of, you know, away from, you're still a part of the space, but you're removed away. So your visual cues are minimal. Maybe there's some sound, some, some tall chairs that hide the sound from you. I'm thinking of university libraries that have like those little nooks you can hide in, but then they have like a coffee shop you can gather in and then tables you can work together and that's this whole variety of spaces to appeal to a variety of needs. Now, Rebecca Rotundo, again, the Associate Director of Learning Design from University at Buffalo. Thanks so much for being here and inspiring us today. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Now, coming up on the show, why Silicon Valley could become tomorrow's Detroit. What's that all about? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Well, Silicon Valley has always been the tech hub of the world over the past decade. The tech community has expanded to other locations. Uh, Some, like writer Ryan Heath, are saying the shift in diversification could make Silicon Valley the next Detroit. And Ryan is here to share what that means. He's a senior editor from Politico, who focuses on global policy, also with his uh, Global Translations newsletter. Thanks for being here. So great to join you guys. So I found uh, this article so interesting and very true from my experience as well. How have we seen the landscape change in Silicon Valley? And I feel like it was really over the past like decade or, or so. 
fairly dramatically. You obviously have a situation where the world's most famous and most successful tech companies mostly all came out of that region, at the very least the West Coast of the US. But other countries have been trying to copy them for a very long time, and they're getting more and more successful at that. And you have a situation now where you have regulators as well on the tail of these big tech companies. We don't trust them the way that we used to. We've really flipped from being super optimistic about the role of tech in the world to being very distrustful about how it exploits our data, uh, how it exploits a lot of people in the process. And that means that you've got heaps of other cities and countries who are trying to do innovation in their own way now. And their, their most entrepreneurial people don't always feel the need to turn up in Silicon Valley. And because of the pandemic, they often can't now. So can you track the moment where we started to have trust issues with these industries? Uh, I think that really goes back five or six years now. And for, you know, for many of those companies, it was the, the very specific early adopters or the people who worry about these issues in big bureaucratic buildings in national capitals around the world. I'm not saying it was your average Facebook user, but it's people who worry what happens um, as a result of the Snowden revelations, as a result of what happened in the 2016 election. They see the fact that you have these trillion dollar companies, but you've got millions of people on food stamps or who can't get the health insurance that they need. And I just think there's like a basic fairness, hang on, can this be wrong? right sort of question that starts entering into people's minds and that starts to filter through the whole system. And because Silicon Valley is really the, the peak of that system, that's why it's under attack. Yeah, it's really uh, fascinating. And, and I find it's it's healthy. It's good because there's so much talent in so many other places. And it sucked how there it seems to be like the, an obstacle or a wall, right, um, that a lot of people had a hard time overcoming. Again, we're talking to Ryan Heath, senior editor from Politico. What cities or countries are now leading the way that people should be looking out for? Canada is really having a moment. They've now got around about a million people in the tech workforce. And the biggest hub there is Toronto, but also up in Vancouver, just a stones throw away from Seattle, where obviously you have Amazon, Microsoft, and a bunch of other companies up there. Israel is absolutely going gangbusters on startups. And that's something that it's taken them 20 years to get there, but they are really hot right now. And then other countries have, have specifically pitched themselves as places for things like big conferences, Portugal, who would have thought of Portugal as the place for the world's biggest startup conference, or a tiny country from the former Soviet Union, Estonia, Everyone gets a digital identity at birth. They invented Skype and they are determined to come up with another 10 unicorns. And that's amazing for a country that's basically the size of Baltimore. So as economists are obviously worried about the economy because of the effects of the, the pandemic, what are some of the pros and cons to this, right? Because I would assume that this could offer more jobs for folks, but then also mm -hmm. gentrification comes with these big tech companies coming into these places. So what are the pros and cons of these moments? Mm -hmm. Well, so you have a situation where I think some of the Silicon Valley CEOs realize that in a very polarized uh, economy and country that they haven't really done a lot to think about, hang on, could we have some people in Oklahoma? Do they all need to be in the Bay Area, for example? So there are steps that these companies um, could be going through or are going through right now to reflect on how do we spread out our own workforce and let people be talented where they want to be talented instead of forcing them into expensive housing and long commutes in the Bay Area, for example. So I think there is some self-reflection going on. You also have a bunch of uh, tech companies who are using this moment to say, hang on, it's a bad economy. Um, screw California and your taxes. Screw all of these other regulations. We are just going to go on a race to the bottom and we're going to run off to Texas and we're going to run off to other low regulation areas. So it's almost like they're doubling down on the problems of Silicon Valley rather than thinking about how can we change it. Uh, and then I think you also have a situation where a lot of other people from the outside are questioning the type of innovations that happened out of Silicon Valley. You know, there's an app for everything now, but why couldn't we be more prepared for a pandemic? Why haven't we solved some of these other bigger environmental challenges? Uh, you know, you've got very, very smart people. They're clearly able to figure out how to make billions of dollars. Why aren't they applying that brain power to some of the other more fundamental challenges out there? Yeah. And why hasn't the government invested in innovation? Right. I mean, we've seen the, the Trump yeah. administration focused on all these old school industries and it's leaving a whole gap open for the rest of the world to say, OK, we're going to invest in innovation in our 
countries and our cities. Yep, and you're 100% right. So what is different in a lot of other countries is that they see a more direct role for the government in turning around their startup culture. Now, I think I think that a lot of people in the US forget is that the US has the world's biggest military, and that has often been the source of a lot of the innovations that we now rely on, whether it was the space race or the internet that came out of the military originally before it became a commercial operation. Uh, so the US does have that sort of government link, but it's not the same as a government sitting down and saying, we want 100,000 startups next year, or we're going to force every Everyone to learn to code in school. You know, a lot of these other countries have national curriculums and things like that. And in the US, everything gets decided at a local and state level. So it means that people are free to innovate, but it also means when the US is left behind, they really get left behind and it takes them a long time to turn the ship around. Yeah. All right. Ryan, he's senior editor from Politico. You're sticking around with us because we got a fun story coming up next. You can now bid to blow up one of Trump's casinos. Want in? Well, then hang out with us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Atlantic City is offering critics of President Trump the chance to celebrate his departure with a literal bang. And back with us is Ryan Heath, senior editor from Politico. Thanks for being here. It's a real explosive story. Yeah, wow. Yeah, there you go. And I, I found this story actually on your Twitter feed. Uh, Mayor Marty Small Sr. announced this yesterday that the Jersey Shore town is auctioning the chance to push the button that will set off the implosion of the now closed Trump Plaza Hotel and, cas- and Casino. Thankfully, the city is donating the money raised to the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantis City, which is such a beautiful thing to do. Uh Tell us, you, you were intrigued by this story, obviously. Well, yeah, it's it's certainly not a neutral approach to the transition, let's say. Uh, the bidding is already up to around $60,000, so somebody really wants to, to be involved in this. And my real question is why they aren't doing it on the day of Biden's inauguration. You know, they should literally send Trump out with a bang if that's what they want to do. But the bidding will be open until Trump's last day in office. So I think that's the timing connection that they've tried to make there. I mean, my thing is, has in, like I feel like buildings do this all the time. Is it just special because it's a Trump building? Well, it's been empty for years. Uh, so it's kind of symbolic of Trump's business model for mm. a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, I think they finally just decided enough is enough. And if you had a massive empty uh, building lot down on the beach in your town, you'd eventually you'd want to get rid of that as well. Yeah. So this uh, mayor said he wants to raise at least a million dollars. So how would that work? Like one person would pay one million dollars to do this? You know, well, people have made bigger political donations in the past, but it works in reverse as well. Uh, There is a group of people who are trying to uh, crowdfund saving Trump's uh, birth home, the the place where he spent the first four years of his life. But that is raising significantly less money than this drive to blow up his casino. So that maybe tells you the relative interest that people in the tri-state area have in, in Trump's uh, legacy buildings. Wait, what? They're, they're, can you explain this? They're trying to get rid of yeah, Trump's the, home? Yeah, the house that Trump grew up in for the first four years of his life, it's a suburban house, you know, a nice suburban house of the era of sort of 70 years ago. Uh, but nothing, none of the McMansions of today, certainly not a Trump Tower, let's put it that way. Uh, and it's up for sale. And there's a group of his supporters who evidently don't have the money themselves, but would like to preserve this monument to Donald Trump. But they've only raised, I think, about three or $4,000 at this point, which in New York, it might buy you the letterbox, but it's not <laughs> going to, the postbox, sorry, but it's not going to, to get you the full lot at this rate. Oh, I'm obsessed with this. This is great. And honestly, the Christmas joy that we all need. Now, Ryan, as we wrap things up, we know you're heading to Georgia. The Senate runoffs are happening January 5th. What are you looking out for while reporting there? Well, it's an incredibly interesting dynamic because a state that had been frequently ignored for decades uh, has now got politicians buzzing all over the place. My husband is from Columbus, which is a town outside of Atlanta, and they had Biden on Tuesday, Pence yesterday. They're going to have Kamala Harris on Monday. It's the sort of level of activity that they have not seen in decades. And so the question for me is, one, are they going to take all this sudden attention seriously, or is there going to be a lot of eye rolling? And two, Two, is Trump's very persistent campaign to challenge the election results actually going to end up hurting the Republicans that he claims he is trying to help? And I'll be down on the ground on Monday to figure it out. 
Well, we appreciate you for taking your time to join us today. You are informative and hilarious all at once, which I love. Uh, again, that was Ryan Heath, senior editor from Politico, focusing on global policy with the Global Translations newsletter as well. Check that out. Ryan, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, guys. Now coming up on the show, New York is banning the display of Confederate flags and other hate symbols on state grounds. More details on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how to deal with spiritual burnout. We're going to help you. Plus, we might just be helping ourselves too. (laughs) Plus, we meet one of the longest living AIDS survivors on our Yaz Queen of the Day. So stick with us for that conversation because it's a powerful one. And that's coming up later this hour. But first, here's how to celebrate the holidays with us this weekend. So, yeah, let's talk about Channel Q Presents Pop Goes Christmas. Uh, Tune in Sunday, December 20th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern for our holiday music special with music performances from pop diva Ava Max, Why Don't We, special guest appearances and interviews with Mariah Carey and Sam Smith and so many others on the list. Um, All you got to do is tune in right here on your favorite Channel Q station. Simply download the Radio.com app or ask your smart speaker to play Channel Q. It is that easy. That's Sunday, December 20th, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Okay, let's get into some what's trending this hour. We spoke about this earlier in the show, how Senator Ron Johnson blocked the $1,200 stimulus checks as they're continuing to figure out this coronavirus relief package. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders attempted to force the Senate to reconsider. That would provide a $1,200 direct payment to every working class adult, $2,400 for couples, and $500 for their children that the bill be considered read three times and passed, and the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table. Is there objection? Madam President. Senator from Wisconsin. Reserving the right to object. So, of course, we don't have a decision by today's deadline, but hopefully sometime over the weekend. And we'll continue reporting about that and bringing you the latest as it happens. Now, the state of New York will no longer sell or display anything considered a symbol of hate, including the Confederate flag. And that's according to a bill that they just signed into law. Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the bill, which goes into effect immediately. Introduced earlier this year, the bill prohibits the selling or displaying of symbols of hate or any similar image or tangible personal property inscribed with such an image on public property. And he said the term symbols of hate shall include but not be limited to symbols of white supremacy, neo-Nazi ideology or the battle flag of the Confederacy. And by limiting this display and sale of the Confederate flag, Nazi swastika and other symbols of hatred from being displayed, uh, this bill will help safeguard, Cuomo said, New Yorkers from the fear instilling effects of these abhorrent symbols. So good on him for that. Now, Amazon workers at an Alabama warehouse are getting closer to holding a vote on whether to form the first U.S. union at one of America's largest employers. And it's a groundbreaking possibility closely watched by the company's ballooning workforce. The union is looking to represent hundreds of employees at an Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama. Much of Amazon's workforce in Europe is actually represented by unions. But the company has so far really fought off labor organizing efforts in the United States. Amazon is known for its opposition to unionizing. And it said the petitioners did not represent the majority of our employees' views and actually touted the facility's average pay of $15.30 per hour benefits and, quote, long-term career growth. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so Cardi B is just willing to try a little bit of everything and anything. So she launched a new video series called Cardi Tries Blank 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 via Facebook's Messenger app, which features the WAP rapper attempting something new in each episode. From ballet dancing to stunt car driving and firefighting to teaching, Cardi will be joined in each episode by experts in the field here's a little of what you can expect have you done ballet before i used to be a stripper i am not athletic so i don't want to break my damn name 
still need to use the brake to stop the car. The brake to stop the car. Do it, girl, do it. So this seems like it's going to be hilarious. The first episode is already out, and I believe it's, like, super popular on Facebook. So Facebook's figuring something out. I just didn't know they were doing content through their messenger app. I'm so confused. It's so weird. Yeah, a lot of people think that messaging and texting, like that is a new kind of social network because people aren't looking at their feeds anymore. So it's actually pretty smart. Yeah, but I'm also not watching television while I'm texting someone on my phone at the same time. It's weird. I don't know. But if you want to check it out, new episodes of Cardi Tries, blank, 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 will drop every Thursday through February 4th. So get into it, honey. That is your tea report. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As we wrap up the show, we like to share our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. I am so excited for this guest. And we're not just talking about the story. We have him joining us today on Let's Go There. He's the first out queer city council member of Ventura County. He's an entrepreneur, an HIV advocate, diagnosed with AIDS in 1987, one of the longest living survivors. Doug Halter, welcome to the show. And you get our Yaz Queen of the Day. Hey, Sharon, Ryan. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Well, this year has been so pivotal in, uh, for politics and for the LGBTQ plus community. And obviously you being elected also proves that we've come so far. You know, it seems like it seems like we were going backwards for at least the last four years. But it's just a really good sign of hope that uh, society and humanity continues to keep going the right direction. And that's the direction of equality, of equal opportunity, of fairness and inclusion. So I'm really excited to be a part of this and to help do what I can for a city that I absolutely love. I mean, well, you are a superstar, to be quite honest, and it's kind of an honor to have you on the show. I mean, the L.A. Times back in 1997 uh, wrote about you. Um, how has your advocacy changed and evolved over this time from that pivotal oh. moment of you telling your story to now? You know, Ryan, that's amazing. I'm a little bit embarrassed that you found that article. But <laughs> Google, Doug. I know Google is amazing, but uh, you know, I was honored back then and I'm still honored today to have the type of respect uh, and appreciation that I see out there in the community. And to answer your question, I knew when my partner died, it's been almost uh, 30 years, well, over 30 years, there's 30 years uh, on Tuesday that my partner of um, six years passed away at 26 years of age of AIDS. And um, that day was pivotal in my life because that's what I, I, uh, promised myself in honor of his memory. Uh, he was so proud of who he was that I would live my life as openly and honestly as I could to honor him and everything he brought to me in my life. And to know that if anybody ever thinks of somebody should or why doesn't somebody do this or they ought to do that, to know if you thought it, you have a responsibility, not just a right, but a responsibility to take action. Because all of our ideas together create a more exciting and more vibrant world for all of us. And so I knew how I valued every single day. I didn't take for granted any opportunity to share my viewpoint. People who know me know that and to get involved and everything's so interconnected. Initially it was, it was kind of like um, people say, well, who's this gay guy? Who's this gay guy that's getting involved in our community and started the downtown community council and the music festival and the, and then Rubicon and a few other things they are also interconnected. But over time, those organizations became more like the chair of the Chamber of Commerce. And I've run before for city council, unfortunately lost before, but I've run before for city council. And then I was elected president of downtown Ventura Rotary. So I feel the more you share who you are, the more people get to know who we are as individuals, we value that uniqueness that we all bring to the table. And we're no, we lose that fear or that feeling of feeling threatened by people that you may not understand. So I'm honored to be a bridge to the rest of our community and to know that I have respect across the community from some of my most conservative friends to my most progressive friends to mm-hmm. all walks of life. And so it's no longer just a message about AIDS. It's a message about unity, a message about humanity. Oh, my God. That was, that's emotional. Doug oh, Alter, no. <laughs> you are an amazing person. It's an honor again to have you here and to give you the Yaz Queen of the day. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> 
Really? I mean, uh, you really prove that it's important to live every day to the fullest. And you've done that really been part of history. So thank you again. And that was uh, Doug Halter, the first out queer city council member of Ventura County, HIV advocate, uh, who is one of the longest living survivors. Thanks again for joining us and being our Yasmin of the day. All right. Yes, queen. And that officially does it for our show today. We appreciate you again for hanging out with us and being part of the fam. On Monday's show, we're going to be talking about how one city is building vaccine trust in Black and Latinx communities, and could that work nationwide? Plus, how the only queer cafe in Los Angeles was impacted by the pandemic, but has found a second life online. So stay tuned for that on next week's show. And if you miss any of our shows this week or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Have a great weekend and see you Monday. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. On the next show, one city is building vaccine trust in Black and Latinx communities. Could it work nationwide? Plus, how the only queer cafe in Los Angeles was impacted by COVID-19, but has luckily found new life online. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.